A very warm welcome to this World Game Changers podcast, where your host, Paul D. Lowe, embraces many crucial conversations that compassionately contribute towards creating a better life and world. Paul's intention is very simple, to help get people's inspirational insights and motivational messages out into the world so others may benefit. Welcome back, World Game Changers, to this podcast episode where I am very happy to say, very pleased to say I'm joined by two um, two American people again. One is a director of World Game Changers, Kristen Johnson from California, and the other one, first time ever, Jim Mayer from sunny St. Louis in Missouri, <laughs> United States of America. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Glad to be here, Paul. Um, and indeed, welcome, Kristen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be with both of you, men. I feel rich already. <laughs> um, and that's a beautiful segue from Kristen about richness, because I think we just we'll throw, you know, we'll throw a line in the sand here, listeners, and say wealth is a state of mind or is it? Wealth is a state of mind or is it? Allow me to set the scene, uh, Kristen, Jim, if I can, around this. I'm going to quote one of your fellow Americans, Tom Peters, when he says perception is all there is. And I studied Peters when I was doing my master's in quality management. And I love this perception is all there is. You know, who is the richer, the man or person, should I say, that only has, um, you know, very small financial prowess but is really content or the person that's a multi-billionaire but he's got no network he's got no friends he's got no family now that's a very i'm stretching that to try and prove a point because the reality is they're very polarized examples but i kind of just use that as a, literally deliberately to stretch the examples any thoughts jim as a starter for 10 on this yeah I I think that that is uh, very insightful as far as it's the perception. I think it is, um, I think you really get to a lot of someone's core values when you, when you think about how, when you understand how they perceive wealth, you know, it, is that their driving factor? Is it, is it about accumulation or is it about, something more? Is it about, you know, giving back? I mean, our, um, for example, in our organization and in my family, it's the exact same core values, you know, help others become more shared success, six words, simple. And, um, I think that I'm also at a wonderful vantage point and that I can see happy people, uh, fulfilled people, purposeful people in different economic states. And they have had, um, to your point, much success. You know, it, 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 I'll, sh- I'll share the story, Kristen. It was, there was an attorney that I was working with one time and he was talking about this client that he had. And the client was beside themselves, very wealthy individual about a child wanting to be a school teacher. 
And the attorney said, if that's what the child wants to do, think about it this way. You're endowing one of the potentially greatest teachers that could impact so many people, you know, in, in, in that manner. And so, it, you know, it, again, it, it really, um, you know, to me, it's about what is the core value of that person and it's more insightful than how they perceive wealth. Kristen, what are you, what are your thoughts? Well, I want to, I want to um, add a quote. I love that. And I want to add a quote for, uh, from Wallace Waddles, uh, science of getting rich, who's also into the law of attraction, one of the teachers and says, the very best thing you can do for the world is to make the most of yourself. And I think that's so true because, and I'm also reminded of the parable of the talents where one person buried the talents and one person went out and spent them. And so how are we using our resources? Because wealth is not just about the dollar. It's about how we use those resources and what those dollars do. I mean, in terms of financial wealth is such a variety of, of things, but wealth is also the totality of life. It's, it's making a difference. It's making contributions. And I want to ask you, uh, Jim, about with young with young people since you just mentioned that example of the attorney and the uh, and the client's child how can we teach kids to think about wealth because there it's really starts in the schools right it starts at home but it also starts in the schools and we don't teach that in the schools and we may not be teaching it at home but they've got to learn it from somewhere and they can't learn it from what the culture is teaching them that more is better that, you know, the, these sports stars and things like that, that frankly also need to learn a bit more about money. Some of them are great, but some of them are, um, you know, they just, uh, what, with what they're given, they really don't know how to use their resources to the best of their ability. So the kids have to learn about money sometime and from someone, how can we teach those kids? I think, you know, it, it's, there's, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the, the video on uh, the marshmallow test where they put mm -hmm. the little children in the room and they're smelling it, they're, you know, everything to wait on that. But delayed gratification is such an important behavioral characteristic for people to grow in life. I mean, it, it, it goes beyond accumulating wealth, but that ability to have delayed gratification is so crucial. I mean, we, we were, we were very simple in, in approaches as far as the old jars, a third in one jar, you know, basically 30% in one jar, 30% uh, savings, you know, so short-term, intermediate-term, long-term on what we're doing. And then we would have 10% for philanthropy, but the children physically dropping the money in those jars and seeing that, I mean, in, in our house, this is how we approached it. And, um, 
it's been it's been it's been very good. I mean, the the things where people, um, especially children, get in trouble is with credit. And so when you think about our society as a whole, it is very predatory in nature, you know, so when they sign the people up for credit cards, if they get the guarantees from the parents and everything, but that, you know, that's about immediate gratification. It's not about physically handing someone something that you earned on that. And one other thing that I think was very beneficial with our, with our kids as I, as I look back is I would match money. So whenever they had a job, I would match the money they would make on that job. So if they would go babysit for someone, I had my oldest son worked at a, um, at a golf course and the manager said, your son takes every hour. He's unbelievable in how he uh, shows up and everything like that. And he was getting paid eight twenty five an hour, but he was making sixteen fifty an hour. So he, he didn't miss any shifts. But it's like it's small things like that that I want to teach work ethic. I want to teach yes. an understanding of um, you know of money. I mean, we work with so many um, clients, and the the ironic thing is is the thing that made people so successful on that every generation you want more for your children than what you had and you do more for them and that's why we have this cycle this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations every continent every country you go to in the world has some version of that statement about you know someone making it it getting depleted some, it getting depleted all the way, and basically the family having to start over. Paul, what's your thoughts on that? I'm just fascinated. I, I love it when I kind of what I love to do in in general is kind of plant a seed and spend you know when there's three, four a group of us and just see how that interaction and what what's the feedback, what's you know what's the dance that takes place, and in this case between you and Kristen. Um, I just find it fascinating. I love what you said there, Jim, about, you know, the match, my terminology, but the match funding, because and a word that you've mentioned semi consistently already is the word values. And, and I think that is such such an important thing in life. And I'm not so sure. And I'm generalizing now, obviously, based on my experiences, my conversations that I have with people around the world, be they young, old, black, white, irrespective of all the labels. But I'm not so sure that values, um, Jim, Kristen, are as prominent in the world as, as they should be. And for me, values is a sign of wealth, immense wealth, because mm -hmm. if we haven't got values and you know we've all got different sort of thoughts on what they may be but integrity truth honesty diligence you know the list goes on and on and on and of course that's very subjective and personal to each and every one of us but if we haven't got them you know we could have all the all the tea in china so to speak but we've really got nothing have we and this mm -hmm. is for me is this whole holistic approach to to wealth. And, and yes, finances is a massive part of that. You know, it would be folly uh, and, and downright ignorant to say, well, you know, you can have all the other stuff. We don't really need money within the wealth dynamic. 
Okay. <laughs> I think this uh, <laughs> we're kind of going back to the 60s hippie movement of peace and free love for all, brother, sister. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's my thoughts, Jim. I mean, it, 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 it's interesting that you, it, it, as far as values, it, it, I'll throw this out to both of you, as far as think about the institutions that were there once thriving, strong, that really focused on values. And I, I literally just had this conversation this morning about the demographics in our churches. And as far as just the aging population that's in attendance, where you don't have the younger people coming into that. I look at like Giving USA has statistics every year on uh, where people are going with their philanthropic dollars. And I, I look at that and I think that is kind of an affirmation of what is what is happening but religion is starting to decline. Never really lost. It was always about a third of everything that went out. And now percentage points on the $455 billion that was given to philanthropic organizations in the United States, religion is now going down on that. And I look at those institutions to your point where, where is it? We're, we're afraid to teach values in the classroom. You know, we're, we're afraid to uh, engage in those types of conversations. And so the, the very organizations that were the fabric of what taught children and families values and, and held them to a standard as to how they lived and in what they did in their communities and in that community of that religious organization, how they were viewed and everything. That um, especially after COVID, it's shocking what has happened. Democrat, I mean, are, are you seeing the same thing in your area, Kristen? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I know that in my area, we have something like 700 uh, charitable organizations, nonprofits, and there's a lot of giving, there's a lot of fundraising. Fundraising is uh, like another industry, but yeah, it's. Because of the shutdown with COVID, because of everything, I think the churches here are are, are very um, are are very active. But COVID really, uh, the shutdown really took a huge toll on them. And but generally, no matter where you are, I think that those values are um, not not being taught as much and. We could all say, oh, in my day, dot, dot, dot. But you get everybody <laughs> talking about the fact that we are losing some of those values. And that value is it has a double meaning because there's value in terms of wealth. And there's there's also values in terms of keeping your word punctuality, trusting those institutions. And then there's trust, which is kind of like a double word because you have you have trust financial, and then you have trust as a society glue that makes our society go. And I think with the polarization, with some of the cultural divides and things like that, with some of the societal changes, you have some of those values uh, no longer being taught, but I think that people are really, really hungry for that, and that's why 
people are seeking. Do you find in your practice, in your practice, in your work with wealth management and guiding people, that people are hungry for that and hungry for a return to that. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of people lost, you know, and and so we come out of a period in time where we allowed ourselves, or it was necessary for us to be isolated, and we became comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that has really, um, and it's interesting to me age-wise, it didn't matter the age as I look at our clients. It could be all the way to infants that were for two years, no one could come around them. And now we throw them back out into society and they're scared of people. Imagine (laughs) imagine that, (laughs) all the big six-foot people coming at them. But it, it, it's like everyone, uh, it, it, at the end of the day, it, it really, it changed who we are from the standpoint of this, this openness. And I, I mean, it's, uh, that's scary to me. I mean, you know, you think about, you used to go to all these other places for questions or answers or, or you, you know, I can remember uh, you know, growing up in a farm community that, you know, the, the people would go and have, have coffee at the, 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 the diner and they, they'd talk about things or they'd be at the elevator with their crops. And my dad, dad had a great saying, the first liar never had a chance when he would talk about his yields or whatever that year. <laughs> but it was, that was community. That was, that was, um, uh, that's how you got other information. And you look at where we are now, it's like, you know, my, my chat GPT or what, whatever, my, my son picks this up. He was born in 05 and I have four boys. The oldest one was born in 96, uh, 99, 01 and 05. And I can tell you that that nine years difference is, you know, think about it Two. Two years after he was the youngest was born, the iPhone came out. How he walks around and interacts with technology in our in our house, you know, Siri this, Alexis this, uh, Chat GPT. I mean, you know, he right now he's 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 going through the Bible and, and he's reading and he's marking. He graduated from high school a year early, you know, and so these are these are how he's comfortable without all that social part, because he can still get information the way that we had to be socially active in the past to get information. Now it's at our fingertips. And so I don't know how that twists, you know, the future in to to your point, how do you build trust? If all I, you know, if this is, if this is what I trust in how I get my information and language and everything like that. So it, it is interesting. To me, as far as the um, how different they the people live, I there there was I was at a um, Bank of New York Mellon conference, and there was someone talking about um, genealogy, and as far as the um, you know the like baby boomers and and all of these groups, and they're typically about twenty years in those segments, Gen Z, Gen Y, all, all of that, millennials. 
they're about 20 year breaks and they have said now they have to do sub breaks. Was the person born at the beginning of that? Uh, you know, was he the early part of being a Gen Z or was he the second half of being a Gen Z? Because they're very different people in how you communicate with them and how you, how you need to work with them. Mm. Wow. I'll tell you what was going through my mind there was how everything in life seems to go full circle. So when you was talking there, Jim, around, you know, um, even the disparity between, um, you know, your, your boys in terms of their ages and how technology is impacted, you know, what you've just said there about the breakdown of the decade into two halves. Um mm -hmm. But when you look at that, you know, maybe this is a generational thing from me that that I've witnessed, um, although I'll put a caveat on this, the unprecedented growth of technology is, is just crazy. Um, but my point, my general point that underpins this is everything kind of comes full circle, doesn't it? And I just wonder, you know, when it does come full circle, we kind of just paint it a different colour, give it a different name and breathe some life into it. And I'm just wondering, I mean, this is maybe a bit of a left field approach, but when you were speaking there about, you know, the the difference but just within that decade, you know, I just wonder how this will play out with technology uh, and not, you know, to debate the technology thing too deeply, or maybe we do, uh, but more importantly, how that impinges on our values. Because, you know, as Kristen will attest, Jim, one of the phrases that I use, um, and this is not through any political allegiance, going back to the mid 80s, was from the prime minister that took over from Margaret Thatcher, which was John Major. And John Major was kind of having a dig at Thatcher, uh, his predecessor, by saying, we need to go back to basics. And that's a, that's the turn of phrase that I'm, you know, not as I say, through any particular allegiance to the Conservative Party in the UK. But I really do believe that there's this kind of going back to basics that humanity is crying out for. And I think we're, you know, to bring in the wealth dynamic, I think we'll be so much richer for it. I, I, I do. Uh, I do agree with you that there were there were also good things that came from COVID. So at a, at a healthy cost to society as a whole and the millions of people that died around the world, the one thing that I think in every part of the world, family became stronger. So that was your, that was, that part uh, was something that we had lost for a long, long time. And I think that interconnection there was substantially rebuilt you know because as i would talk to people they would they, they were talking about family you know and our, our it's interesting our mission is taking care of families you know and so listening to how they communicated with one another at, at, at that uh point in time how they they stopped i mean i i think you know you think about working lifestyles today are, are different. I, I, I was just in a um, um, commercial building and we're walking through this building and empty cube, empty cube, empty cube. As CEO of the company 
is walking through and he said, yeah, all these people used to be in here and now uh, 38 employees, um, over half of them are remote in different areas of the country. Right. You know, and so we're no longer there. I mean, it, it, and so that, that part of people not being on a road or not being just at a work site, you know, for the, for the sake of being at a work site, I think has changed forever, at least in, in, in the way, uh, in the way that we look at it. Mm. Kristen, what was your, what was your experience? I, I saw you on the, on the family part of that, uh, that invoked an emotion. What would, what were you thinking? Well, it became, it was very close because, um, because obviously it was very difficult, um, because we couldn't some because you couldn't see uh, your elderly loved ones. I was very I was with my dad, so but it was very difficult because we were uh, uh, it we were all protecting him because he's in that com compromised category. But it but I mean and so but spending time together for some of the family was very difficult. But also it but it was out of love, and I think in some ways it actually made that bond uh, it made that bond strong very strong but it was also very difficult and uh but we were so much more aware in my family about you know the preciousness of that family ties not that we weren't before covid but i think that we just became so much more aware of when all this craziness was going on that this was this was our nexus this was our core and it was just absolutely wonderful to to see the families coming together and families bonding. And I know that the families had challenges. You know, I think about I thought about how it was for parents who suddenly who both needed to work, who suddenly had kids all day at home all day on the computer and it was that's a very difficult challenge when you're trying to make ends meet i thought about that but mm -hmm. i think those families um it, i think you become i don't want to speak for anyone in that situation but sometimes when people are in that situation they find resources that they didn't know that they had and not to take away from anyone anyone's experience because I know it was tremendously difficult. I mean, businesses lost, um, connections lost, time lost with your loved ones. They say time is money. That that time is something that you can't get back. And I think yeah. we were all more aware of the the time that we needed with our loved ones. Well, we, it was funny with our family. So we have my oldest son, uh, has had two liver transplants. And so he was in law school at the time. So we immediately mm -hmm. get him out of law school uh, from the University of Missouri and, and get him home. Well, then when he was home, we had another, the youngest boy was a freshman in high school. And so we had, had to have him stay at home because we didn't you know, want that brought in. But then the other, uh, the other two brothers came back and it one was at uh, Indiana University, and then the other one's in the MLS, and he lives in Nashville. But that time that we were all together for the first, you know, that couple months when everything was shut down, it was like, 
we ne- we're never going to get that again. You know, we're never going to get that extended period that we're not, you know, on a trip meeting somewhere or whatever like that, that it's a brief vacation or whatever, but it was just being together and playing cards and, you know, board games or, or, or whatever from a time standpoint, you know, to get through. And it was um, definitely richer for that moment. They weren't, you know, children, you know, they were adults, you know, coming, coming back together. So very, it was very, very interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It strengthened your family bonds. It strengthened our family bonds. I, I think it strengthened a lot of family bonds from what I'm hearing you saying. Mm-hmm. I want to throw in, Jim, to you particularly, um, it's a cliche, it's well cliched, of the only true wealth is health. And what you guys mm-hmm. were just talking about there, kind of COVID, I think that really speaks to that, doesn't it? Um, because we can have all the millions in the bank, and I'm deliberately yet again creating this contrast between financial wealth and non you know arguably no you know non-financial wealth um but health is everything isn't it yeah i mean it's a uh uh there, when i got out of law school there was this family that i lived with and uh, her name was henrietta and she would talk uh, uh, she was like 91 her husband was 96 and he, in the prior fall, had lost his teeth in Belize when he was scuba diving, or, or not <laughs> snorkeling. <laughs> and so they're very active family or whatever. But every night, uh, she'd have one glass of wine, and, and she'd go and say, your health, your wealth, <laughs> you know, and she'd go off, go off to bed. But it was, you know, having a child that is chronically ill where we had the two liver transplants. And I mean, we mm. lived in a Ronald McDonald house for three months. Um, mm. When he was nine months old, they took a third of my liver at the University of Chicago. And we did an adult to infant liver transplant. And it was like one of the first 400 in the world. Uh, if he would have been born seven years earlier, it was 100% mortality, what he had. And, you know, witnessing children fighting cancer and in, 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 in that, in what uh, people would do in that situation. And then you go back to this COVID, you know, and it was the flip side for the elderly, you know, and the concern around them with it. I mean, the um, think of the, the pictures and things where they're, um outside windows you know uh for birthdays or whatever in nursing homes and things so just very good point paul you're out your wealth but in i said very good point your health is your wealth thank you yeah and I think, you know, Jim, when, when we go back and Kristen, when we go back to the top of this conversation and, you know, the values thing that you alluded to, Jim, and, you know, maybe John Major was ahead of his time in that cliched statement, time to go back to basics. You know, you've brought in the COVID thing, Jim, that's kind of forced us, whether we liked it as, as a human race or not, we had to deal with it. 
and you know this all going back to basics to you know this community tribe this family love of family basics all these you know all these adjectives abound um and i don't know what you two guys think um but i feel that there's an energy there's a shift that's taking place throughout the world where the kind of old um established way of doing things the whole culture of the world the world order is changing people's values are changing i think people are I hasten to use the word softening. I don't think that's the right word, but kind of certainly realigning to the more qualitative, heartfelt, dare I even say spiritual, you know, notwithstanding what you said earlier mm -hmm. on, Jim, around your example around donations to the church. Despite that, I really do feel that there is a shift taking place to take us back to the heart. I, I, I think, Paul, and not to be mistaken on philanthropy people are giving but they're not doing it through the church anymore right. so this ability with technology with everything like that it's self-directed philanthropy but uh understand every year the philanthropic donations number continues to rise so i think the prior year was like 424 billion then 455 and i mean through covid through whatever it never, it, it just incrementally is going. It may be in different areas that they do it, but I do, I think people want an ideal world and they want, um, they, they want a lot of things, but they got to realize there's certain things we need in this world, you know, as far as systems and in safety and in, in health you know, things that um, should not be wants, but are actually needs. And it's how we address those problems and how we start to solve that. And, you know, through, uh, you know, you look at like um, Bill Gates, you know, and the Gates Foundation and, you know, their effort with malaria, you know, and how they uh, initiated that. And, and, and I think the other thing is this uh, uh, billionaire's pledge, you know, where they're given at least half of their net worth uh, to social causes. And, and, and I think that um, those, those types of things, there was, there was always philanthropy, but it was never celebrated. And I think today, to your point, Paul, with, you know, cultural values and things like that, we're celebrating those that help others. Mm. And I think that is a move in the right direction. Mm. Kristen, any thoughts? I was going to ask, um, Jim, well, really both of you, um, is it helpful for people like I know in World Game Changers, we got we have our own uh, mission vision and values we have our own definition of of success and mission and values and where we would like to uh, allocate our resources if you will is it helpful for people and organizations to have that kind of personal definition of their values and where they want to be and where they the impact they want 
to make with the resource they have? And really, what do they need in terms of what, obviously financially, but obviously in terms of other resources as well? Is it helpful for people to know what their values are before they start? You can't really start on a journey if you don't at least have a direction. Right. Oh, I think it's, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's necessary, you know, I mean, that, that, that type of planning, that type of, um, you know, who, who, you know, it, it recently asked this question, you know, to, to our organization, who are you, who are we, you know, and, and I think that constant assessment of what are we doing to grow? You know, how are, how are you growing? You know, when they look at themselves and reflect in what, in what they're doing. And it was, uh, I mean, it's just interesting insight as to um, that, you know, I, I talk about those core values, but how it came out in our people in the organization when they started talking about who we are. And, and, and I think, you know, but for having something like that, you're, you're really not an organization. You're, you're just independent silos everywhere and in operating like that. But if you want to bring clarity to where we're headed or where we're going, you have to have um, that. I mean, and, and as I, as I shared, I, I mean, our core values at our organization is the same that I go home to. You know, and so it's just helpful from a consistency standpoint on if it's important to me, my household, it's got to be important to me where I want to work, you know, and, and, and what I'm doing. I, I got to have people that share that common uh, interest with me to really make the change in the world that we're trying to make. Yeah, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with that. So as we start to uh, to wind down now you know, on what I believe has been a fascinating dance around the uh, the metaphoric dance floor, um, I want to ask this question. So to both of you individually, um, if money was no object at all, you know, there was literally a bottomless pit where would you what is the one thing in the world where you would invest in to make the world a better place and i know that's a big question because there's many challenges throughout the world but infinite capital directed in what cause what would that be for you guys i mean i can start so we have we have a program that we operate through our work in my my from a philanthropic standpoint, I am very much about engaging others on their passion. So what we do is we give each employee a thousand dollars. That employee picks a nonprofit of their choice and they go work on that nonprofit for the following year. And so the projects are set up around what we're looking for is sustainability of what they come up with, impact and personal development. I could never spend $1,000 on training 
and achieve the same results that this program chase. I mean, we when people come here and interview for our company, I mean, all the all the things that came out of this. And then at the end of the year, we have a ten thousand dollar grant for the best project, uh, seventy five hundred and a five thousand dollar grant first, second, third, and then one on social media. And there's been other businesses that have replicated that program. And in fact, we'll send I give away we my first project was basically uh, documenting the whole thing, the 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 emails that went out to our employees, the the PR press releases around it, uh, everything that we did. So we created a guide for companies to implement that. And we can put a link on your on your site with that guide and people can download it for free and, and look at it and they're always welcome to call us. Um, but personally, because of our experience with our uh, son, um, we identified three things. And I think it's important to have impact. You have to be, um, people can't be all over. I can't write a $25 check to every organization or, or whatever. So what we, what we decided as a family, we invested in youth health. So through tertiary children's hospitals, things of that nature. We invested in youth sports because of the other children's participation in, 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 in that, and we invested in youth education. And so um, we helped create two Apple campuses on uh, with two of the schools that we worked with, uh, but that's how we focused. And if I had that bottomless pit, I think that investment in young people is how I would change the world. And I would continue to do those and work in all three of those areas. Okay. Wow. Kristen? Oh, so many uh, things I would do to make the world a better place. If I had, I think part education, absolutely important. Um, just empowering young people. And I have a personal soft spot for ending homelessness just because of seeing the, every time I see a homeless person, I just uh, feel, feel so bad. And that would be something that, and also, but I think the young people is, are so critical. And uh, I also have a soft spot for older people, but I think that yeah, definitely education would be one of the big things. And just making sure that those education dollars are focused in the right direction, because without that focus, you're at, to your point, Jim, you're absolutely right. And sometimes our personal experiences, like with your son, and um, I know people that have had liver, that had liver transplants, it is not easy, especially when you're waiting on that list. You know, mm -hmm. you really get focused when something like that happens you re you really learn what's important and i think that no matter what i chose to invest in um having those values guide me would always be the key and listening to my the people that uh, i trust okay what about you paul 
what would I? What the, yeah, I, I'm not very. I'm not used to people turning the tables on me, Jim. <laughs> you know, when you've got the proverbial. Well, you think I was going to on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what would I invest in? Um, wow, isn't it interesting how you can ask a question without actually having a, a you know off the tip of your tongue answer? Um, for me, it would be youth in sport, and. Mm -hmm. And that's very heavily influenced by my own journey. And these things invariably are for as a kid. And I, and I know I shared this story with you, Jim, when I, we met face to face in St. Louis, when um, you very graciously took me to the uh, the football game there. And um, but when I when I look back at my own youth, the thing that literally kept me alive because I'd given up because of what was going off in my world, I'd given up. But there was a shred that kept me hanging on a thread. And that was that one day I would play football for Nottingham Forest Football Club. That was enough to keep me alive. And um, and it kept me alive for against some really stark challenges. So, you know, that runs very deep with me, very deep. And, mm -hmm. and I vowed that one day I would represent that club. And I did as a mentor later, not as a player, but as a mentor to some of the best oh, talent, yes. gifted, talented, you know. So that kind of brings in what you spoke about, Jim, earlier on, right at the top of this conversation, when we, well, he actually, when we was off air, about the law of attraction, because I attracted that. I, mm -hmm. I vowed as a child of, you know, 10, 11, 12 years of age, that when I had a trial for Nottingham Forest, when I was 13 and a half, didn't make it. I was probably, be, well, I don't want to make excuses, probably because I wasn't good enough, clearly, but I had a significant challenge in my life called alcohol, even at that age. So mm -hmm. that would be my, you know, um, to quote Harry Seacombe, the, the late, great Harry Seacombe and his iconic song, If I Ruled the World, every, every child would have a ball to kick. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to wrap up now, Jim, Kristen, if I may, right at the very top of this uh, amazing, amazing dance that we've shared between the three of us. I kind of ask the question around, is wealth a state of mind? So not in necessarily in a closed response or a quote closed answer, but in 30 seconds, each of you, can you address that question? Is wealth a state of mind? Kristen, I'll let you go ahead. I think wealth is a state of mind. I think that you can have the biggest bank account and not have it be enough. And to use your uh, opposites example, Paul, and you can have... Um, considerably less than that and also feel like you have a million bucks or you're a billionaire. I think it is a state of mind in some respects. There there are some cold, hard realities, but it's also about what you do with that wealth. So what you do with the resources that you have, that is a state of mind and, and gratitude. That's something that Wallace Waddles talked about too. That's something that a lot of people talk about in order to uh, have that wealth and feel that wealth and know what you have, you also have to be grateful for what you have. 
count your many blessings one by one. It's it, it, it is it is very interesting. Would the two of you believe that from what it's more indicative of two children in the same family than their height or their weight, their wealth when they grow up. And so, you know, from, from a state of mind standpoint or what they were taught or the schools that they attended or whatever, that statistic blew me away that it is more indicative how, I mean, how close their bank accounts would be, their net worths would be on that. And so it's, um, as far as a, a state of mind, I, I really go back to, I, I think people, um, it's more this law of attraction. I think it's more this, um, what they want to be, what they want to become is, um, is what's going to drive it. They may consider that wealthy or they may consider that not from a financial standpoint, but from a mental standpoint. I think that ability to have this law of attraction into an area of your life or a purpose or meaning behind what they're pursuing, that to me is wealth, you know, and, and, and I think it brings out, it, it brings us to introductions like this of people that are open-minded, that are, that, that are trying, you know, to do, do things and have impact, have influence, you know, I mean, it, isn't it ironic that we're on this podcast together today? <laughs> no coincidences in life, Jim, no coincidences, <laughs> only things unfolding. So there you have it, listeners, on that philosophical note, all that remains now on the note of gratitude is to thank Kristen and Jim for their excellent and, and very diverse, I feel at times, um, in part. So thank you both for that immensely. And I'm going to sign off, listeners, uh, the way I always do, by saying, remember, the world's changing. How will you respond? Thanks very much for listening to this World Game Changers podcast episode. Hopefully you found it interesting and helpful. Drop a line to paul at worldgamechangers.org with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Remember, the world's changing. How will you respond?